Thanks, Dave. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for bringing us here today. And as we study your words and the passage we've just read, we pray you would open our hearts and our minds. Lord, comfort us and guide us and help us to hear your voice this morning. I pray you'd bless my words and use them as you see fit, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit as we gather together in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder if you had a hero when you were growing up. Um, When I was growing up, my heroes were mostly sporting figures. Um, The Rugby World Cup is on at the minute. Um, One of my heroes growing up was Lawrence Delalio, who was part of the Rugby World Cup winning team in 2003 because he was the captain of my rugby team, Wasps. Um, And when he was captain, we won the European Cup. We won championship after championship, and he sort of fought for the cause. Um, In football, one of my heroes was a man called Terry Butcher. Do any of you remember him? Uh, Because Terry Butcher played for my favourite team, Ipswich Town, who were top of the championship, by the way. Just a a plug. Um, And Terry Butcher gave his all. That was what was great. He he gave his all. And his most famous um, example of this was playing for England um, in 1989. And if any of you are of a squeamish disposition, you may look away now, just to warn you. Um, He was playing for England. He was captaining England in a vital World Cup qualifier in 1989. And England needed a draw to qualify for the World Cup in Italy. And they did. And Terry Butcher was the captain. But the thing that happened at that game, he um, accidentally headbutted a Swedish player. They were both going for the ball. They headbutted each other. And he had a rather nasty gash on his head. This was quite early in the game, but Terry, uh, in his full-blown commitment to England, kept going through the game. Um, And the end result was this. Um, So he was playing in a white shirt, but by the end of it, he was playing in England's away kit of red because he was bleeding and he just carried on. And the thing with Terry Butcher was um, he was very good at heading the ball. Um, And he would keep heading the ball, even though um, he had this massive gash on his head. And I think by the end of the game, every other player on the field was covered with his blood. (laughs) He was a hero. He gave his all for the cause. Um, My university housemate, Simon, was a very keen tennis player. And his hero was Tim Henman. And after Tim Henman retired, um, Simon won a competition to receive tennis lessons from him. And I remember Simon saying to me that while it sometimes said to you, you shouldn't meet your heroes because they will, they will just disappoint you, in Tiger Tim's case, he was everything Simon had hoped that he would be. He was a really nice guy by all accounts. We find a lot of heroes of the faith in the pages of the Bible. And one of them is Elijah, who is the subject of our readings this morning. Now, Moses and Elijah are often depicted as the two great heroes of the Old Testament. Moses as the bringer of the law, and Elijah as the ideal prophet. We read that at the end of his life, Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And in the very last words of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, it says that Elijah would return to prepare the people for the day of the Lord. And to this day... Jews leave an open door and an empty place at the Passover table for Elijah in case he returns. And it's no accident that in the story of the transfiguration, 
in the Gospels, we read of Moses and Elijah meeting with the glorified Jesus on the mountaintop because it was demonstrating how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. But in fact, what we know of Elijah is relatively little. We know of him from a handful of dramatic stories in eight chapters of the Bible at the end of the book of 1 Kings and the very beginning of the book of 2 Kings. We know that he was a prophet who ministered in the kingdom of Israel. So a bit of a history lesson. After King Solomon died, there was a unified kingdom of Israel at that time, and after he died, the kingdom divided into two, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Elijah was from the northern kingdom of Israel. And he was a prophet from about 875 to 850 BC. So that's about 2,900 years ago and nearly 900 years before Jesus was born. And for most of that time, the kingdom of Israel was ruled by King Ahab, who, with his wife Jezebel, are two of the great baddies of the Bible. It says in chapter 16 of 1 Kings that Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. And his principal crime was idolatry, because he imported the foreign gods of his wife Jezebel, and so the faithfulness of the people to the one true God was under attack. And in this time of great spiritual struggle, Elijah becomes the principal defender of the way of God in this fight between good good and evil. And God bestows on him amazing, miraculous powers. He prophesies to Ahab that as a sign of God's judgment upon him, there will be no rain until Elijah says so. And it doesn't rain for three years. During that time, Elijah stays with a poor widow who only has a handful of flour and a glass full of oil. And she is on the brink of death. And yet, in a miraculous way, the flour and the water never run out. Elijah later brings the widow's son back to life. He then confronts the false prophets of the foreign gods on Mount Carmel and challenges them to a contest to show who is the true God. And God miraculously sets light to an altar that Elijah has drenched with water. The false prophets are defeated and killed. The people proclaim that the Lord is the true God And Elijah tells Ahab the rains will return. He then goes up on Mount Carmel to pray for rain. And after checking seven times, his servant, it says, spots a cloud as small as a man's hand rising from the sea. And Elijah tells Ahab to travel in his chariot back to the city before the rain stops him. And it says, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rainstorm came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak in his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. He ran a marathon, because that was a distance of about 20 miles. And that is where we find Elijah as we start our story today, in a moment of triumph over God's enemies. 
So Elijah was a significant figure. He was a hero of the faith. And when you read his story, for the most part, it's one of amazing miracles and triumphs. So much so that he comes across as not just a hero, but almost a superhuman. But he wasn't. He was a man. And as our New Testament reading from the book of James says, Elijah was a human being, just as we are. And nothing demonstrates that more than where we pick up the story in our Old Testament reading from 1 Kings chapter 19. So what happened? When you read the story, it seems that Elijah had an emotional and mental collapse. His mental and emotional well-being were under extreme pressure, almost to breaking point. And here I want to say a word to those of us who have suffered or are suffering today with our mental health. And I want to say a word about my own experience. Because I used to preach regularly here at church, um, but some of you, if you're new to the church, or relatively new, may never have heard me before. And that's because it's been, (coughs) excuse me, four years since I last preached a sermon. Because for me, the last few years have been a difficult period with my mental health. I've been suffering from stress and depression. So I identify with Elijah's downcast feelings. And when we're in that place, as Elijah felt in our story, God can feel distant, and we can feel hopeless, helpless, in despair, and ready to give up. And yet, in my own dark times, this story of Elijah was such a comfort, and I will go back to it again and again and again. Because it tells us that even heroes of the faith suffer with their mental health. And that was an encouragement to me, and I hope it is to you too. And it also tells us that with God, there is always hope. So let's read on together. So at the start of chapter 19, as I was saying, Elijah seems to be in his moment of greatest triumph. The false prophets have been defeated, and the power of God has been demonstrated by the coming of the rain. Yet almost immediately, victory seems to turn to defeat. And the immediate cause comes with the threats of Jezebel. Because we read in verse 1 that Ahab tells her everything that Elijah has done, how he killed all the false prophets with the sword. And it says, So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, that's a curse, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, Elijah has received a death threat from the queen, the queen, a powerful figure. Now, ordinarily, I think Elijah would have brushed this off. His faith in God was so strong. He had faced down God's enemies before, and he had demonstrated his power again and again. But this time, the threat completely floors him. And verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, it's the 10K run along the seafront this morning. Um, But Elijah didn't run for 10 kilometers. He didn't run the equivalent of here to Southend or here to Lee. He didn't even run the equivalent of here to London. He ran all the way from Jezreel in the northern kingdom of Israel to Beersheba, right at the southern point 
of the kingdom of Judah. That's a distance of 130 miles. That's the equivalent of running from here to Leicester or Southampton. And the next day, he starts a journey even further south to Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb was 350 miles from where he started. That's like running from here to the Scottish border. That's how far he ran. And he didn't run on tarmac roads with good footwear either. And then we read words in verse 4, that having arrived in Beersheba, he left his servant there and went a day's journey into the wilderness. And it says, he came to a broom bush. I have no idea what that is, by the way. Um, He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So Elijah was having suicidal thoughts. Now, I'm really conscious of my responsibility standing here in front of you. And so it's really important to treat this subject sensitively and carefully. And I want to stress I'm not a medical professional and I'm not an expert in mental health except through my own um, experiences. What I do know from those experiences is that mental health is an illness. And let me underline that if any of us find ourselves in a dark place with our mental health, it is really important to seek help, to seek advice from medical experts and support from those around us to talk about how we're feeling and not suffering in silence. And I want to give a plug here for the course that's been going on the last few weeks on dealing with depression, which Catherine has been running. And Bev and I went to the um, preceding one of this course, and it was so good to speak to other people who had been through the same thing or were going through the same thing as I would. Talk about how we're feeling. I know from experience that mental health struggles often come with a stigma, um, a sense of shame and guilt, in particular for us as Christians, because we sometimes tell ourselves, I shouldn't be feeling like this, I should be full of joy. But Elijah's story tells us that anyone can be affected by their mental health, even a hero of the faith, a man like Elijah, capable of doing great things for God. Struggling with our mental health is not a sign of sinfulness or moral weakness. Christians suffer with their mental health too. And this story offers us comfort when we're experiencing dark times. So what brought Elijah to this point? When I read it, it seems to me that he was suffering from complete physical and emotional exhaustion. Um, He was burnt out in the modern phraseology. When you read chapter 18, you understand why. Look at what Elijah had been doing. There had been three years of drought and famine. Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. Then God told Elijah to present himself before Ahab, which would have been a dangerous thing to do. Elijah bravely does so, and then he then leads this great confrontation with the false prophets on Mount Carmel. He defeats them, he prays intently for rain, and then he runs for 20 miles ahead of Ahab's chariot. It seems to me that those experiences altogether 
had brought him to the point of mental and physical exhaustion. And when he's in that state of mind, Jezebel's death threats are the final straw. And we know that at times of intense stress and anxiety, our fight or flight response kicks in. And that's what happened. Elijah ran for his life. And so he tells God he's had enough and he wants to die. How does God respond? It's really important to recognize that God does not condemn Elijah for feeling the way he does. He's gentle with him. He provides for him physically. He meets his spiritual needs and then he restores him. First, he provides for his physical needs. Look at verse 5. The first thing Elijah does, having made his complaint, is lay down under the bush and fall asleep. He desperately needed physical rest. But he also needed food and water. But there was a problem. Elijah was in the wilderness. There was no food nearby. So God intervenes in a miraculous way to take care of him. The words of the verse say, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And then look at verse 8. It says, Strengthened by that food, he travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I'm not suggesting we sleep under a broom bush. Um, A bed is a better option. I'm not suggesting we prepare meals in the wilderness. Um, Our kitchen is probably more sensible. And I'm certainly not suggesting we walk for 300-odd miles for 40 days and 40 nights for our exercise. Um, A walk along the seafront is probably more realistic. But Elijah's experience offers us a life lesson. We all need rest, we all need to eat healthily, and we all need to exercise if we're to thrive, in particular if we're struggling with our mental health. And next, God attends to Elijah's spiritual needs. Why was Elijah on Mount Horeb, 350 miles from home? Did you notice that verse 8 describes it as the mountain of God? This is a deliberate echo of the language of Exodus chapter 3, which is the famous story of Moses and the Lord appearing before him in a burning bush, which was on this very mountain, Mount Horeb. It was a holy place where God had met his servant Moses. So it seems that Elijah was deliberately searching God out by traveling to a holy place. But in his case, it was a convenient excuse to run away from his troubles because he wasn't meant to be there. He was meant to be back in Jezreel. So God gently challenges him in verse 9. What are you doing here, Elijah? And here Elijah elaborates on his complaint under the broom bush. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. 
Now, we might commend Elijah for being honest with God, as we all should be. But there is a trace of self-pity in his complaint. And that leads him to exaggerate the problem. I'm the only one left. And as we'll see in a minute, that's not true. But while not condemning him, God doesn't let Elijah get away with self-pity either. Instead, he reminds Elijah of who he is. And we come to one of the most famous scenes in the whole Bible, in verse 11. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. This is a really dramatic and mysterious scene. But it speaks to us of a truth of our faith. Very occasionally, God may meet us in a really dramatic way. And we may have our own stories of when he's done so. God had met Moses on this very mountain with fire. But more often, it's in the silence, the gentle whispers, the proverbial nudge in the back or tap on the shoulder that God's voice can be heard and his guidance felt. And so it is with Elijah. God treats with him gently, reminds him that he is there and he is in control and he is God. Now, to begin with, this doesn't seem to have any effect. Did you see that God repeats his question and Elijah repeats word for word his complaint? Now, I was reading a book the other day where um, the text accidentally repeated the previous sentence. And some people might view this as an accidental copying of the text. It's not meant to be there twice. But I've always seen it as a deliberate repetition because it's telling us, I think, that in spite of God's presence with him in the gentle whisper, Elijah hasn't got the message yet. He's still in that place of complaint. And so now God is more direct, and in doing so, he gently restores Elijah. And he does it in two ways. First, he gently challenges him. He tells him to go back home. Look at verse 15. Go back the way you came. Elijah isn't meant to be here on Mount Horeb. He needs to go home to fulfill God's purpose for him and his people. But God doesn't send him home empty-handed. He answers Elijah's complaint. Verses 15 to 17 are full of mysterious people and places that are difficult to make sense of. He tells Elijah to anoint two figures, Hazael and Jehu, as kings over Aram and Israel. And we don't need to go into the details today, but essentially in the coming years, God will use these people to deal with the corruption and idolatry of Ahab and his line. In other words, God is saying to Elijah that his complaint, that all his efforts on God's behalf have come to nothing 
is not true. God is still there. He is still God. He is still in control and he still has a purpose. Even when the going gets tough, when the way ahead isn't clear or all seems lost. And then he answers another prayer. Remember what else Elijah said. He said, I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me too. He's not the only one left. And God says to him, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. He reassures Elijah that he is not alone. And then in verse 16, he tells Elijah to anoint his near namesake, Elisha, as his successor as prophet. And the story ends with this lovely account of Elisha's call. Elisha is out ploughing the field and Elijah throws his cloak around him as a sign of his anointing. Elisha kisses his parents goodbye and sets out to follow Elijah and become his servant. And in the years to come, Elisha too would do amazing things for God. Elijah is not alone. God grants him a faithful friend and companion after his own heart. So what can we learn from all of this? God doesn't treat Elijah with extremes. He doesn't condemn him, but neither does he let him feel sorry for himself. Instead, he meets his needs, gently challenges him, restores him, and in so doing, answers his prayers. So we find in the story of Elijah comfort and reassurance. It tells us that God is with us in our struggles, in particular for those of us like Elijah struggling with our mental health. It reminds us that for all his dramatic successes, Elijah was a human being, just as we are, with all the strengths and weaknesses we have. It encourages us that just as God met Elijah's needs, he will meet ours. And just as God answered Elijah's prayers, so he will answer ours. And just as God restored Elijah, so he will restore us. And most of all, it offers us hope, even in the darkest place. Because Elijah experienced failure. And we all do that sometimes. We all fail. But what Elijah found is as true for us today as it was for him that failure is never final with God. Failure is never final with God. As he promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And in a moment, we're going to sing a hymn that speaks of finding God's peace amidst the noise of our lives And it finishes with a verse reflecting on Elijah's experience with these words. Breathe through the heats of our desire, thy coolness and thy balm. Let sense be dumb, let flesh retire. Speak through the earthquake, wind and fire, O still small voice of calm. And if we're troubled this morning, I pray that we will hear that still small voice of calm today. Thanks for listening.